I want to start out uh, right away uh, uh, going to the end of the message. I just go to the end of the message right away because I want, uh, I heard an amen out there. Rich, hi, how you doing? It's nice to see you. So here, here's where we're going to go. So every, everything, oh my goodness, everything in the message that I'm going to say, is, I, I want to persuade you to do this, this end, this application. Here we are. I want you to uh, take your phones and uh, take a picture of this prayer watch uh, thing. Now, if you can't, you know, take a picture through me or something like that, then you, there is one in the lobby on the, on the back wall next to uh, well, one of the offering boxes. You'll see it. It has different colors. It'll say prayer watch. I want to ask you to take a picture of that, and then on your phone, I want to ask you to, to make a, what do you call those things? An appointment on your phone, an alarm. There we go. So make, set an alarm on your phone for once a week. And then once a week, pray the four, one of the four prayer requests that are on this prayer watch. Now, these prayer requests are... We're going to be praying for an unreached people group. If you don't know that, what that is, we're going to be talking about that in the, in the message. We're going to be praying for an unreached people group. We are going to be praying for someone from among us to just decide to live among an unreached people group wherever they are in the world. It's kind of a big deal, okay? You're going to be traumatized if you are one of the ones that decides to do that. Um, I'm just going to tell you ahead of time. And if you decide to do that, come and talk with Carol and me, okay? Because uh, we've done that. Okay. Now, and then uh, we're going to pray that each one of us will have the creativity to, and, and the, the love for the Lord to actually alter our lifestyle so that we'll be able to support whoever goes out and lives among an unreached group people group, to send them and have them trained, okay? This is the kind of thing that the Lord wants to do in all of his congregations throughout the world, okay? And so, I, in case I don't finish the message, because of that swine clock down there, that's where we're going. And everything else is trying to convince you, persuade you uh, in our body of that, Okay? You ready? All right, here we go. He's got the whole world in his hands. 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 Oh, yeah. Here we go, man. Again, he asked, he being Jesus, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Let's interact just a little bit. Jesus' parables stand for something. Jesus' parables mean something. We're not talking about a bakery here. We're not talking about yeast and dough, really. 
We're talking about something else. So just, just go ahead and, and say it loud, call out. What does the yeast stand for? I'm waiting until I hear it. You online? You have to, a little louder, please. Okay. I didn't hear anything. <laughs> the yeast, and Jesus said it. You're going to kick yourself once I tell you, because Jesus said it. The kingdom of God is like yeast. Okay? So yeast is the kingdom of God. The reign of God. The way God wants things to be. The way he runs things. The, the way he is. His character. When it's applied to this world. That's the, the kingdom of God is not a place. It's not a geographical place over there somewhere else in the world. It's not a, it's not a space a place in the heavens or anything like that. The kingdom of God is wherever God's will is done through one of his subjects. Okay? We have to, we have to understand that. So, the yeast stands for the kingdom of God. Okay, now think about Jesus' parable. If the yeast stands for the kingdom of God, what's the dough stand for? Humanity. Humanity. Us. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, very good. Now, now, now you're catching on. So the dough is the population, the people of the world, all right? Now, this is not really tricky, but it might be tricky for some people. What does the woman who is, is mixing uh, the dough, what, what, what does she stand for? God, yeah, someone said God. You, you, you kind of hesitate because it's a woman. Do we, do we want to say God is a woman? Well, Jesus isn't, yeah, Jesus is not particular about that sort of thing. It's his parable. But, but again, it's a parable. So God is the one who takes his, the way he wants it to be, his character, and puts it into the world. And like a woman, he is mixing the way he wants things to be. The subjects of the kingdom, us, the dough, so some of his yeast touches us and we change. Our character changes to be more like his. And then, and then as he mixes, we come into contact with others and then by his power, they change, okay? And so then, what happens? God is mixing, and he's mixing how long in this parable? Until it's everywhere. Until it's everywhere. Until the whole batch of dough. So I, I wrote a summary of what this parable means. So it's not the parable anymore, but it's, 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 the, it's, it's what it means. The reign of God began in a seemingly small and insignificant way, like a little bit of yeast in a big batch of dough. Okay. And it, the reign of God, is growing and expanding, and it will continue to grow until God's amazing character influences the entire world, and we are moved, we are rejoicing, we are thrilled, we are delighted with his will. 
He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. That's what the parable is doing. Now, I got to tell you, I got to tell you about one year, the year 33 of the Christian era. In the year 33 of the Christian era, God actually, Jesus is talking about what God had already actually begun. He took yeast, he took his son, Jesus himself, and put him in the world among a bunch of dough, all right? And he began having contact with the, the dough. And as Jesus taught, as Jesus brought the kingdom of God, the way God wants things, as he expressed the character of God to us, he made some people mad, some people angry, enough to kill him because not everybody wants things to run the way God wants it to, to run, right? And so Jesus dies. Turns out that was on purpose. That is what, all, that is what God wanted to happen. God wanted Jesus to die as a sacrifice for our sins. For the way we broke our relationship with God. Jesus became a sacrifice and he atones for our sins. And then God did something else amazing. Jesus, he, he, he made Jesus alive again after having him killed so three days later, Jesus raises. We know for sure we have a new relationship with God. And, and the kingdom of God really, really starts at that point. After Jesus rose from the dead, he, the king, gave us the command, the great commission. We call it the great commission. And you know what that, what that is. It's the time when Jesus actually commanded us to go and make disciples of all the nations, meaning all of the ethnic groups of the world. AD, uh, or 33 in the Christian era, Jesus did that. Now, I gotta get something straight. This going, this commission, was uh, a commission that is, what's the word I want? It is, hmm, it, it is to all of us. It's, it's a corporate commission. Now, this is a really bad example. Well, it's a good example, but it's a bad subject. When, the, when, when a nation goes to war, right, not everybody, not every citizen of that nation uh, is actually shooting people on the front line. Some citizens are, are engineers building bridges so they can cross uh, uh, rivers. Uh, some citizens are truck drivers getting food to the troops. Some citizens are taxpayers uh, so that the soldiers get paid. Some citizens are uh, 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 politicians so that they can uh, try to talk them out of the war. <laughs> okay, citizens have different roles, and it is the same sort of thing among us. When Jesus says to go and make disciples, everybody is involved in the going, but not every person goes. That's why we're going to pray and ask God to raise up someone from among us to go. And then that's why the rest of us are going to do what we can do to send those people. Okay? 
Now, here is a summary of the Great Commission. Jesus is king of the cosmos. You want to raise from the dead? Would, would, would that qualify for being a king of the cosmos? When Jesus, when God raises you from the dead? <laughs> uh, Jesus raised someone else from the dead, but it was God that raised him from the dead. All right. We go, so Jesus, king of the cosmos, he told us to make disciples, apprentices that practice his lifestyle. This is a paraphrase of the Great Commission. He even told us how to go about it. One, we go wherever we must to interact socially with people from every ethnic group in the world. Two, we take their pledge of initiation into Jesus' divine character, the same character which is from his Father, and that holy character residing invisibly but manifestly among his people. That's us. And three, we teach them to put into practice everything Jesus told us to do. And the conclusion of the Great Commission, he wanted us to be encouraged throughout this massive mission, and it is not small, because he himself, our powerful king, is and will always be with us. He's got all the nations in his hands. He's got all the nations. He's got all the nations. It's true. Now, we're going to cover another period from 33 AD all the way to uh, 400 of the Christian era. 400 of the Christian era. Now, in this period, there were two devastating epidemics. Okay. Um, these epidemics were instrumental in getting pagans in the Roman Empire to believe, to be a part of God's people. They were pagans, then they became a part of God's people. And here's how it happened. When, first of all, when I say epidemics, I'm not talking about anything remotely like our pandemic that we had, okay? Our pandemic that we uh, recently had, that was kind of small in comparison to the epidemics that we're talking about. In the Roman Empire, a third of the population died. A third of the population. That would be, if that happened in the United States, that would be over 100 million people if it had happened in the United States. A third of the population. We're talking about caravans uh, of caravans of carts and wagons going from the urban centers to the rural areas disposing of the bodies. Okay? We're talking about fear because pagan households had so much fear that whenever any of their their relatives uh, showed signs of the disease, they would abandon them. They would force them out of the household to fend for themselves out in the world. And so in the urban areas, the fountains, okay, there would be thousands of people around the fountains, some of them dead, most of them half dead, just so that they can have access to water, okay? 
So when we're talking epidemics, these were severe because of the fear. Now, Christian households, on the other hand, reacted very differently. In Christian households, when someone showed signs of the disease, they were cared for. Water was brought to them. They had a warm place to sleep with a blanket, the place where they always slept. They, I don't know if it was chicken soup, but they had the equivalent of chicken soup brought to them so that they could eat. People didn't know this at the time, but there were so many deaths, uh, but most of the deaths were, were due to the treatment. The, they were due to exposure and to dehydration. Uh, more so than the disease. But if there were, had been just basic nursing care that Christian households provided for their people, people, many people could have recovered from the disease. And in Christian households, many people did recover. And why did Christian households act differently during those epidemics? There were two reasons. One, Christians believed that death is kind of a bummer, it's an inconvenience, but it's not the end of the world. Christians believed that, that they would be raised just like Jesus is raised. They really believed this, and that there was a hope of a life reconciled with the Father in which there is no curse, there is no evil, there is no badness. And so for Christians, death was just an, an inconvenience, but not a big deal. The second reason is that among the pagans, uh, in, in their worship, the gods didn't really care much about their ethics. The gods just wanted, uh, the pagan gods, they just wanted them to give offerings and burn incense and things like that. And so pagans pretty much got to act however they wanted to act. <laughs> you know. Christians actually believed that when we care for the needy, we are caring for Jesus. So for Christians, it was an act of worship to care for the needy. And how easy is it when someone is in your own household, someone you already love, falls sick? You care for them, of course. But on top of that, they believe they're caring for Jesus. They are worshiping. And so the networks in the Roman Empire, by the end of both of those diseases, changed. The social network changed drastically. And I'm getting, I'm not an expert in uh, early Christian history, so I'm getting uh, my figures from uh, Rodney Stark, who's a professor of sociology at the University of Washington, and he doesn't have anything better to do than to make uh, graduate students uh, pour over ancient history and uh, uh, figure out social realities that were taking place at the time. But before both of those epidemics, there was one Christian for every 249 pagans in the Roman Empire. After both of those epidemics, there was one Christian for, wait for it, every four pagans. So the social network was different. And something else. Imagine, imagine you are, are a pagan at one of the fountains, dying. And you are lucky enough at that time to have been acquainted with a Christian. You knew a Christian. The Christian walks by the fountain, sees you, 
takes you home, feeds you chicken soup, gives you a place to stay when your own family had rejected you and, uh, and had abandoned you because they were so scared. And that Christian tells you that there is a spirit in them, the spirit of Jesus Christ, who loves them. <laughs> Pretty convincing. That is what happened in the Roman Empire in that period. Rodney Stark says, uh, Christian values of love and charity had, from the beginning, been translated into norms of social service and community solidarity. When disaster struck, the Christians were better able to cope, and this resulted in substantially higher rates of survival. This meant that in the aftermath of each epidemic, Christians made up a larger percentage of the population, even without new converts. He's got the Roman Empire in his hands. He's got the Roman Empire in his hands. He's got the Roman Empire in his hands. Yeah. And he does. He does. Okay, the next big period is winning the barbarians. Okay, this goes from the year 400 to the year 800 of the Christian era. I got to tell you something about the barbarians. Well, I got to tell you about the early Christians uh, in the Roman Empire, actually. They didn't like barbarians. The barbarians were uncivilized. The barbarians were, were churlish people. They were always in a bad mood. The barbarians, if you, if you listen to them talk... You can't understand what they're saying because their language sounds like bar, 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 bar. And that's why they were called barbarians. People from the Roman Empire didn't have time for different kinds of people in uncivilized places. But note, take note that, let us remember the Great Commission. So as, as, as wonderful as the, the Christians in the Roman Empire were, as hospitable, as caring, meeting needs as they were, that, that, was, that was great, but they forgot the Great Commission. <laughs> and they forgot because it's uncomfortable and it, it's, it's hard to go and live among barbarians. Okay? Who wants to send their loved ones to barbarians? You see what I'm saying? So, uh, the Goths to the north of the Roman Empire. Some of you are descendants of Goths, I'm pretty sure. Um, and the Celts. Some of you are probably descendants to the Celts to the, uh, of the Celts to the uh, west of the empire. Okay. Well, they did something. There was a method of reaching uh, people for the gospel that isn't really the method that Jesus taught us to do, like with the Great Commission, but it was a different method, and it's called the raid. And so the Goths <laughs> and the Celts raided people in the Roman Empire, and as, as you know, the population is... The population, there's, there's a lot of Christians by this time in the Roman Empire. And the Goths and the, Goths and the Celts, they actually learned 
about Jesus from the people that they raided and captured. And so the barbarians were one. He's got the ba 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 barbarians <laughs> in his hands. He's got the ba ba barbarians. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, the, I'm going to skip uh, the period of a uh, couple periods. The Vikings, some of you are descendants of Vikings. You guys are mean. <laughs> or at least you have mean uh, uh, <laughs> people in, the, in, the, in your past. Your grandpas and grandmas were really mean. So, but the same sort of thing happened. The Vikings came, they raided, captured people, and then they became believers from uh, a lot of the, the people that they, they captured. They learned from them. I'm going to skip the period from uh, 12, 1200 to 1600, the winning of the Saracens, because that's in a question mark. We didn't really win them. What happened was the Crusades. And so I don't understand how it is that people can take the message that Jesus had and somehow construe it to mean go and raid and pillage and plunder and kill people. <laughs> Any kind of people. That's not what Jesus taught. That's not what we're about. And yet, it happened. And so I'm going to skip that passage. Uh, although before I do, we do learn something. No matter how devoted someone is, no matter how sincere, no matter how zealous someone is, it cannot replace the true knowledge of the Lord's will. So now, we go on to the ends of the earth. The period from the 1600s to 2000. Okay? And the ends of the earth is, is uh, there are three eras of modern missions. There's one guy, William Carey, back in 1792, he said, what if we did the Great Commission? Hmm. And then there were some people who said, no, that's for the apostles, that's not for us. But there were enough people that said, hey, maybe we should do what the king of the cosmos told us to do. <laughs> and they started missionary societies. And before you know it, before you know it, uh, in a few years, on the coastlands of all of the political nations of the world, just about all the political nations, there was a church. And there were Christians there trying to reach those peoples. And they kind of thought, hey, we got the job sewn up. The Great Commission's done. But then there was another guy, Hudson Taylor, in the second era, 1865, through, uh, that's where it started. And he said, wait a minute. He was in, in China. And, he's, and he was on the coastlands. And he's, he thought, man, in inland China, there are millions of millions of people who don't know Jesus, who haven't been connected with the will of God. They don't know the good news. And so he said, what if we went in there? And of course, we had the same problems. The roads are bad. Uh, the people speak languages that we don't know. And they're irritable, those people. <laughs> and you could live for years in the interior of some of those places without getting a good bowl of vanilla ice cream. All right? So there were reasons, there were barriers that kept Christians from going in. But a few significant amount of Christians, well, not a few, uh, many, said yes to the call. And they went 
inlands. And it was amazing, amazing the work uh, that they did. And so eventually people were thinking, well, this is a, just about sewn up until Cameron Townsend and Donald McGavern in the third area, beginning 1934, and it's still going. You are in history right now. It's still going. And this era, era is called to the unreached peoples. And what they said is even inland, there are people who, there are different people groups who hate each other. Even the Christians don't want to go to the, those other, other people groups. Again, the barbarian thing, right? Okay. There are people groups who have different languages. The Bible isn't in, in those languages. Uh, pe there are people who are, if we do nothing else, they are cut off. Someone from another culture has to go and introduce Jesus to those peoples. And so, uh, we counted. There are 17,428 people groups in the world. Over 10,000 of them have been reached to some extent. Really good news. Most of that has been done since 1980. I remember 1980. <laughs> and, and, and right now. Amazing what the church has been doing in these last days. Uh, or I should say last uh, few years. Amazing when people voluntarily go. Jesus really is with us. And so then, uh, there are 7,425 unreached people groups left. And it's quite possible that within our lifetime, they'll all be reached to some extent with a Bible. And so, I'm concluding, and I'm so glad that I already gave the application at the very beginning. <laughs> so I started out with the parable, right? This parable is kind of like a prophecy about the woman and the yeast, okay? But Jesus said something, something like the same thing, and it wasn't a parable. He was just saying it out straight. Jesus said, and this gospel will be preached in all the world as a testimony to every nation. And then the end will come. That is really cool. And I urge you to be a part of that. There's only one more thing to do. You must sing with me. <laughs> He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands.